0: Manāki tangata, manāki finua,
1: Haire Fakamua. Care for people, care for land, and move forward. I Aku
0: Raurangatira mā nei te mihi atu kia tātou katoa. Ko Justin Murray tēnei, ko te
1: hōtaka ā Te Ahika. Kia ora, Justine, and I'm Maraia Rakraku, and welcome to Te Ahika, your weekly dose of kaupapa Māori on Radio New Zealand National. Who can forget the sight as 30,000 Māori marched on Parliament in 2004 in protest of the Foreshore and Seabed Act. That saw the removal of Māori customary rights in favour of Crown ownership. And led to the
0: fervour that established the Māori Party and had them taking out five of the seven Māori
1: electorate seats in the 2005 election. Five years and a different government later, the much-anticipated ministerial review of the Foreshore and Seabed Act as negotiated between the National and Māori Party after the 2008 election is travelling the country at the moment hearing public submissions as to whether the Act should remain in place or be repealed. We'll hear from some of the people who made submissions at one of the Wellington hearings. Advanced technology like the internet, TiVo, Google Earth is always pitched as a good thing. And for private investigator Kerry Pihema it largely has been,
0: though her clientele probably wish otherwise.
2: Technology has played a major part in facilitating infidelity and um, because you know you can text, you can blog, you can go online... You can meet people at lunchtimes, you can have liais- liaisons at lunch times on the weekends, so and technology has facilitated that. It's made it a lot easier for people to have
1: quite a separate personality. We remember one of the more charming characters who's featured on Tahikart, the late night tahukia Starkey. Bulla bullers?
3: <laughs> what a bull bulla bullet. <laughs> <laughs> we call them bull bulla bullets or what the parkers call them deadly nightshades. But the right
0: name is Purrup. Where's it some
3: that
0: that's with people and hear what Te Māngai Pāho, the Māori Broadcasting Funding Agency, is doing to encourage and
1: strengthen te reo Māori musicianship. Ko te mia tahi. Māori and Pākehā have an opinion on it, and when it first hit the headlines, it was access to beaches that created most of the tension. We're talking about the Foreshore and Seabed Act 2004. Despite overwhelming resistance, in November 2004, the Foreshore and Seabed Bill was passed. Fast forward five years, and on a cold night in a hall of a well,
0: School known for its liberal attitudes on education, one of what will be 21
1: hui held over a four-week period around the country, is underway. Now, the purpose of the hui is a ministerial review where a panel of experts made up of lawyer Richard Boast, Ngai Tahu O'Regan, and former Waitangi Tribunal Chief Judge Nasi Raukawa Eri Jury hear the public and record their opinion of the Foreshore and Seabed Act, which they will then report back to the government. So, Murai, given the passionate response by both Māori and Pākehā to the law in 2004, were there many people there? There were maybe 50 people, and most of them seemed to be Ministry of Justice staff, actually. So how many people stood and gave oral submissions? Six. And they spoke about why they felt the law either needed to be repealed, that's like almost reversed, or investigated further, or why it should remain in place. And what was the general feeling of those present? Well, as you'd expect, there was a little bit of tension, but other than that, pretty straightforward. The panel would ask questions just to clarify they knew exactly what the person was saying that was it. Here's
4: what some of them had to say. Now,
1: what was the guts of your oral submission?
4: Well, there's a, there's a couple of issues I just wanted to talk to this evening or make a, a bit more of a thoughtful submission on paper. But uh, the first thing was really around the assumption of ownership. And that uh, point number one was I don't think the Crown could assume ownership of the foreshore and seabed and that it really needs to have a discussion with uh, Māori about that ownership. Um, I think that it's similar in some respects to some of the other discussions that the Crown and Māori have had. Uh, for example, the over this radio spectrum rights and about assumption of ownership. Um, and that's because it,
1: you're a trustee of the Māori spectrum.
4: That's correct. So uh, wearing that hat, um, I can see some similarities. And what Māori have said is, well, you can't assume... That you own the rights to the spectrum that you need, that uh, and the Waitangi Tribunal found in its recommendation that the Crown needs to have a discussion with Maori about this. And uh, to date, we haven't had that discussion. Uh, but in the meantime, you know we're pressing on and and um, using the uh, access to the spectrum to bring a new mobile network to New Zealand, which will be launched later this year.
1: Now your hapu is based up on Kiowa
4: if that's correct, so we have some, uh, a family farm on the coast of the Firth of Thames uh, in a place near Mātingarahi, it's called Waimango, uh, near Mātingarahi, north of Kiowa. It's about an hour out of Auckland on the western side of the Firth of Thames. And we own uh, uh, around about, our hapū owns around about 300 acres on the coast. Uh, it is, there's only two or three blocks that Mario all the way up that coast which is a huge turnaround from when that was such a lively Māori stronghold.
1: So how many years are we talking that it's been like that for Anthony?
4: Well, uh, really it's happened over a number of periods since about the 1820s through to where we are probably about the uh, 1950s or so. Uh, Now we've just got that small block. We're the only block that has any coastal land. Uh, and what we're trying to do is create a, a place for our generations, for our, for our young people, that no matter where they live right around the world, they can always stand up and say, you know, I'm from Waimonga. And it's pretty important to our, to our whanau.
1: Often what's um, said about the Foreshore and Seabed Act is access. Now, where you're located, where your hapū's located, is access a problem for people, for Māori at the moment?
4: Well, access... Is an issue, and uh, as we heard tonight, access has only become an issue after the foreshore and seabed legislation was uh, put in place, and it's kind of clouded. I mean, we heard tonight from uh, from Parkia, a fellow who was really concerned about being able to access the foreshore. I think I I made the comment earlier that um, Māori have, in some instances, actually do own foreshore and. that they're part of the 30% of the land that is actually still in private ownership. But in those areas, we found that the practice for Māori have been to allow access, and I think that's one of the biggest issues: is that Māori just, or sorry, the the general population are worried that Māori will deny access. Now that hasn't been the case uh, in the past. Um, I think we need to move to a position whereby we're quite clear that. Access and ownership or management are quite different things.
1: Now, you made a submission tonight on the ministerial review of the foreshore and seabed Act. Yes. What What did your I'm basically saying include? that
5: um, that the seabed and the foreshore belongs to everybody, and that uh, I don't I wouldn't support them changing the the legislation. They uh, could maybe refine it a bit so that included all the foreshore, not just referring to Māori land, but all land, all foreshore. So what uh, do you
1: mean by that?
5: But all the foreshore in, the, in this country belongs to us New Zealanders, everyone.
1: So you're talking about Pākehā, Māori... Pākehā, I don't
5: care I don't care if you're a Māori or not, the foreshore belongs to everyone. So if you uh, have land and you think that you own that right to the to the water and into the water, you're mistaken, because that land... that that beach, that uh, foreshore, and that uh, for me, and that the seabed belongs to all New Zealanders. Okay, just because you buy the land, uh, you know, of, next to it, doesn't give you any right over that, in my view. Okay, uh, so I, I would, you know, if there was any change, I would strengthen it in that sense to make it more fair and not so biased. Uh, and and against the Maori, because maybe that was... Against Maori? Yeah, but I mean, maybe that was the problem in the beginning, because the Maori felt they were getting selectively treated, and and, and in that sense, it's probably true. Okay? But all the beaches, for my mind, all the beaches, all the mountains, all the rivers in this country are a great treasure for all of us. And uh, I don't think any one person should say they have ownership of it. We, they, they are all, it's a gift that we all have, so we all have to take responsibility for.
1: Now, you've just made a submission this evening to the Ministerial Review Panel for the Foreshore and Seabed Act, and one of the things that you mentioned was that even, like, for your people, where you come from, that water is so significant.
6: Yep. Well, it's significant in all kinds of ways. Um, you know, it's our, it's our fridge. That's where we get a lot of clay from. Um, you know it's an access it's a you know it's a, it's a mode of transportation a lot of our people uh, for example the community of Waimahana um, when it rains their clay roads are wash out and it's the only way to get into town is to come back come around by by sea um, our, a lot of our tupuna are buried in caves that are under the water so obviously um well, myself personally, I'm dead against privatisation because it's not just selling rocks and stones and sand and shells, but you're actually selling the bones of our 2 tūpuna uh, buried, buried in these places, and I'd hate to think that those places could be privatised.
1: So what's your position about the Act? Do you think it should be repealed?
6: Yeah, I think it should be thrown out, the whole lot of it, that um, tutting around with it's not, it's not enough just piecemeal changes to it. I think, um, you know, from a, from a political point of view, I think that's designed to just... Um, you know, to pacify our people and and token changes, you know, maybe made to the act, but I think the whole thing needs to be thrown out, and we need to go back to the drawing board.
1: So we're in 2009 now, and it first came into being in 2004. Has your position changed somewhat in those five years?
6: No, it hasn't. No, no it hasn't at all. Um, I think what we need to do, in my, my in my opinion, is that. Um, we need to find ways that we can, um, we can demonstrate our own uh, customary practices and laws, uh, but we don't want the government to do that on our behalf. So, not, for example, in the Resource Management Act, they've got a provision for kaitiakitanga, but they decide, you know, the government decides what kaitiakitanga what kaitiaki is. And I don't think that they're in a position to do that. So we've got to find our own solutions to these things. But and in a way to sit down with the um, with the government and, and make other New Zealanders more comfortable with the fact that we've got our own ways of doing things, and it doesn't necessarily threaten threaten mainstream New Zealand. That actually, I think a lot of them are actually going to be good for this country. So.
1: Now you spend a lot of time travelling around the Mutsu and do you think mainstream New Zealand sees it that way?
6: Well. No, because I think uh, when the initial debate first uh, started up about the foreshore and seabed, I think the news media jumped on and hijacked, hijacked the issue. There's a lot of hysteria about access to the beaches, you know, and I think for the public it, was, it could have came down to, are we allowed to go down to the, our local beach and have a barbecue uh, on the weekend or are the Māoris going to kick us off? And uh, it was never about that. and But that, I think that was the public perception of what the issue was about, but it was never about access. Um, and... In the final analysis, I think the crown wanted to con- control the, um, particularly the seabed. I don't think they were that worried about the beaches, but you know there's huge mineral uh, deposits under on the, you know under the sea. Um, that's where the majority of the oil, natural gas, and there's all sorts of, what's um, that? Sorts of other minerals that have yet to be discovered, and so it's a huge financial resource for the crown. And I think really they, at the end of the day, that's what they're trying to. Um, that's what they're trying to hold on to. Now, that would be OK if the Crown was holding on to those things in the interest of all New Zealanders. But I think you know, the, the 1980s has shown that um, the Labour government of the 80s and successive governments after that have privatised this nation's assets and sold them off to the highest bidder. and. Um, So I think, uh, as was mentioned in tonight's meeting, Māori's are good partners because we're in it for the long haul. You know, if if we've got control of these resources, we're not going to take the profits that are accrued from those resources offshore. You know, they sold telecoms, and all the money that's made from telecoms just goes on a plane at the end of each month and flies across to the States to where the investors are. And the same thing's going to happen if they privatise the oil, the natural gas resources. Which you know that that's been the track record of not only uh, you know the, the last couple of governments is privatisation that's been the agenda. So um, I'd like to think that um, that Māori people would not do that. That we'd hold those resources and and at least they'd be controlled by people in this country rather than offshore interests.
1: In your submission, you spoke about Te kana Māori not being half pie. What did you mean by that?
6: Well, I think it, as it stands at the moment, the government's offering. Um, a bit of a sop to Māori people by saying that, you know, if you used to collect rocks from a certain beach and that's part of your customary practices, maybe we'll allow you to go down there and get those rocks, you know. And they're trying to minimize, I think they're trying to minimize what Māori use rights are, um, you know, of the uh, ocean's resources. And, um, and it's not really up to them to determine what our customary rights are. You know, it's it's up to our people to determine what those rights are. Not only historic not only historically, you know what were our customary rights in the past, but what are new customary rights? We've got the right to invent new tikanga uh, to deal with a, a modern situation. So I think it's dangerous if we allow the crown to determine what a Maori thinks. You know, like.
1: Um, but the Mike isn't it the, the implementation of something that makes it you know, that makes it live and makes it breathe. So doesn't it mean that it has to be a wider thing in terms of educating Parker So we can create a law that has all these things included in it around Sikuna but at the end of the day, it's the practice of it that's going to, um, you know, make it live and make it breathe.
6: Uh, yes, it is. But I think the point was also made at tonight's meeting that you don't have to use something in order to own it. You know, like um, you can own land and you can not use it, and actually, it might be more environmentally sound not to use some land. You know, you don't have to have cows and sheep running all over your land or, or crops. Sometimes it's better just to leave it and leave it for the birds and, you know, and uh, the other, you know, the other uh, animals and things. So, so yeah. So I don't agree that we particularly have to use things in order them for them to be ours.
1: Maybe I've read a few too many Raymond Chandler detective novels or watch Remington steal too many times, Mariah. But when I visited Rocky's Investigations, the private investigations company headed by Ngātikahununu woman Kiri Pihima, I was expecting stale smoke, smelling oak-panelled rooms and sassy secretaries.
0: Instead, Mariah found a five foot two Dynamo whose skills learned in the New Zealand police force
1: has served her well. So, not quite being able to let go of my private investigator stereotypes, I asked her whether her job,
2: was sexy. I don't know whether private investigation is sexy in actual fact. I think people have that perception that it's sexy, but from my perspective it's really about um, quality investigation.
1: What's quality investigation then?
2: Well, quality investigation is about, you know, clients coming to us with a concern and we're relationship investigators, so we look at things like infidelity, um, marriage schemes, internet deception, romance schemes, custody issues, anything to do with relationships. So effectively my job and my team's job is to just look at the facts and um, investigate them.
1: So is this a new thing, relationship investigators?
2: I don't think it is. Um, the Private investigators have been doing this for some time. It's just that we specialise in it. Um, we can see quite clearly that they're... Um, that more and more people are using our services and contacting us on a daily basis, so it became really evident that if we could provide a service that was professional, we don't only look at investigations, but we have a psychologist, a family lawyer and forensic accountant attached, so it's really about offering a service that people need.
1: Okay, so um, you said a forensic accountant... What what does a forensic accountant do?
2: Basically, if people are involved in a relationship and they've got some concerns that um, perhaps their partner's starting to shift money overseas or money seems to be um, unaccounted for in their uh, accounts, well, an accountant can look at that. A forensic accountant specifically
1: looks at just trends and patterns of you know dollars and where they're going. Okay, so when you're saying something like that to me, it makes me think that you're getting a certain class of clientele here, then. Yeah, it would be fair to say that most of our clientele, uh,
2: you know, are um, making enough money to use our services. That would be fair to say. Yeah, um, a private investigator for approximately twelve hours is around about fifteen hundred dollars plus just. Uh, and so Anthony Tūrua Royal, you Ngāti know, Raukawa, Kite Tonga, Ngāpuhi, Parehauraki, Pākehā, Brett Pearson
0: and Ngāti White, Mike Smith. 12 hours not only about the mission that, the the that they are currently given and us, and that might
1: bank account details, details, it might be uh, cell phone details,
2: it may be that he he we sit down with them and we go over the six months, two years, five years of concern that they've had about their partner being unfaithful. Five years? You know, five years really isn't a long time. Um, a lot of our clients have been in relationships for, you know, in excess of 10 years and concerned about their partner being unfaithful.
1: I've got to ask the question then, why do they stay?
2: People stay in relationships for a variety of reasons. We don't make judgement of that at all, right. uh, you know, and some sometimes they stay in relationships because of the children, sometimes they stay in relationships because they believe that's the right thing to do, and maybe it is the right thing to do. And for them and their family. Um, what it can happen and has been quite successful is that we may uncover or or confirm that their partner's been unfaithful and that can be a catalyst for change for them and they can go off and see a psychologist and together work on, um, you know, renewing their relationship. So we've had some very successful... Um, conclusions to uncovering uh, infidelity and you know and some people leave relationships and that 's right for them and their family and as I said, we don 't make any judgment of that
1: but Kerry, what is it that makes them then want to involve a private investigator if they 've known about you know they 've suspected something like this for you know five or ten years?
2: The interesting thing about infidelity is that for some people it's really embarrassing to have to confront they don 't know where to go or what to do. And um, and they've been watching this behaviour of their partner for some time, and they really need an objective third party to say yes, this is definitely happening. Because what you do find is that if they confront their partner early on, the partner and we know statistically that the partner will decline, um, will deny, beg your pardon, will deny the fact that they've had an affair. You know, ninety nine percent of people that we deal with, even when they've been confronted by their partner initially have said that they have never had an affair. So we're an objective third party, and we look at the facts only. We're not influenced by emotion, uh, and uh, we can provide these facts to the client, and they can make an informed decision about their future and the future of their family as well. If they choose to stay in the relationship, as I said, you know they may need to talk to a psychologist or a family lawyer. We will provide those
1: services. In addition to the private investigation That's exactly right. Ah, so, so this, to me, this sounds more like a holistic approach to, it, to this issue. It is a holistic approach, and the reason for that is because it became
2: really obvious to me in the beginning when people contacted our services, both both men and women, that it wasn't only about uncovering infidelity, but it was about being empowered with the knowledge to move forward. And a lot of people have no idea what to do, who to see. They're embarrassed. They don't want to tell their family. Uh, they don't want to tell their best friends. And as a result of that, we can provide those services so that at least they can be informed about where they stand legally, if the relationship spillets, um, what they can do if they're, conscious, uh, if they're consistently feeling anxious. Um, you know, They can see a psychologist. So, yeah, it became very obvious that those um, other parts of this... Um, of our business were
1: just as important as finding out whether someone's been unfaithful. So, Kerry, let's just talk about that term unfaithful. Is this someone who's having a sexual relationship with someone, or are there levels of unfaithfulness, if you please?
2: Well, it's interesting because infidelity really means a breach of trust or a breach of faith, and um, if someone's having an affair, that means a sexual relationship. So usually it starts off with infidelity, where they maybe they're online blogging with someone else, because you know, we have so many websites now that encourage people who are in relationships to be unfaithful.
1: Okay, how do they do that?
2: They just go online. Literally mm-hmm. technology has created an opportunity for those people who um, are perhaps unfaithful to facilitate a whole new personality. So they can go online, I mean, you know... Um, married and married and um, dating i mean there 's just so many different sites there 's a married and
1: dating sites yeah there 's numerous
2: so it encourages those people who are thinking about being unfaithful or who are unfaithful to facilitate a whole new uh, personality um, so yeah it's very it 's very easy technology has made that easy you know there 's blogging there 's Flirting, so infidelity is all about flirting. It's any behaviour effectively that your partner uh, would not engage in if you were standing right next to them. And then from there, it usually goes into an affair. It just depends, but uh, workplace infidelity, for example, is really about forming a relationship with another person. Maybe you're telling them things that you would normally not tell your partner, and then from there they spend a lot of time with each other, and that can go into an affair. And an affair is a sexual relationship
1: with someone else. So the affair would be the end product of all of those things that you've just spoken about?
2: Uh, well, it's usually defined as a sexual relationship with another person, and then, of course, from there you've got you know complications in terms of the relationship itself and that your partner's spending more time away. Workplace infidelity, is, is, that's where a lot of um, affairs start.
1: Has that increased?
2: We've been in business seven and a half years now, and um, what we have seen is it's usually a person who you know well or someone from the workplace. Um, That would definitely be the higher priority than any other types of infidelity that we have seen. Um, As I said, technology has played a major part in facilitating infidelity, and um, because, you know, you can text, you can blog, you can go online... You can meet people at lunch times. you can have liais- liaisons at times on the weekends, So, and technology has facilitated that. It's made it a lot easier for people to have quite a separate personality.
1: So are you finding that there are differences in the way different cultural groups approach infidelity?
2: Um, it would be unfair for me to say that we've got a distinct trend between one and the other. Um, we are seeing more Asians and Indians using our service than ever before, um, and... And it, that's quite culturally different. But uh, predominantly, I would say, at this point in time, most infidelity happens within the workplace that we're aware of. Have you found your views of
1: relationships distorted through this kind of work?
2: Um, no, I don't think so. Um, I'm really lucky. I've got some pretty great role models around me. So I think that's been um, you know really helpful. I've, it's a bit like being in the police as well. Um, I focus on the inquiry. And so, if the inquiry is about uncovering whether, or um, you know, confirming whether someone's had a is having a relationship, that's what I focus on. I'm also really focused on um, making sure that when that person walks away from our service once we've uncovered infidelity, that they are also safe and they're fine, and that they are moving forward in a way that's right for them and their family. So, if we can do that by offering these other services that we have available, we, I think that's um, you know, I'm happy with that. It's really about offering a service that uh, looks after everybody. You know, we're also governed by the Private Investigators and Security Guards Act and we're governed by the Privacy Act. So we have to be very clear uh, when we take on an inquiry that all parties are safe.
1: In your seven and a half years of business, um, I mean, what's the demographic of your clients? It would be fair to say that
2: most of our clients at this point in time are women who engage our services um, to determine whether their husbands or partners are having a relationship. However, we are starting to see an increased number of men using our services, Uh, and that's certainly grown over the seven years that we've been in business. And I think the reason for that is because more men are aware that private investigators are actually doing this type of work, and I think they're feeling more comfortable about using uh, our services. And we offer them, obviously, the same services that we do for women, and that is um, if they need to see a counsellor, or a family lawyer, then um, we provide that service. Interestingly enough, with men, uh, what I have found over the period of time that we've been in business is it's far more difficult for them to admit um, that their relationship isn't working. And uh, and as a result of that, it's really important that we get some, uh, we have very quick services in terms of talking to a psychologist, etc. So men are more receptive, and I think, um, you know, people are more aware that private investigators are being used for this particular service. So, I mean, that's a great thing.
1: You head the um, the business, rocky's uh, Investigations. That's right. I mean, do, are men willing to open up about the intimate lives to another woman? I think it's, you know, it's really amazing because in actual fact I think it's easier for them.
2: And, and certainly from the comments and the re- response that we've had from men it has been really positive. And it's been really positive because... We don't make judgment on, and I'm, you know, very upfront about that. We don't make judgment on why our relationship's fallen over. We don't make judgment on, um, you know, why things have occurred. We just, we're there to to get facts, and we're also there to listen. And I think that's a big one. I think it's about listening. Uh, it, as I said, what I have found over this period of time is that quite difficult. Um, the responses that we're getting from men is that, you know, they don't want to tell their mate, um, they don't want to tell, you know, their family that it's not working. Um, that there's st- Is that a status thing? I think it's. A, I think it's that um, stereotypical attitude that you know some of them are still in that headspace of you know men are the, uh, the providers, and they just see this as perhaps not providing and not being able to keep the family together. I'm sure those uh, sentiments are the same for women, but women will often talk to their best friend. They'll talk to their best friend, their girlfriends, they'll talk to their mother or their parents or their family about the relationship and um, they'll take more of a kind of an active role. Whereas I've found with men is that they don't have the same level of support. That's in my opinion, and certainly over the years that we've been in business, they don't have the same sort of support, support structures in place to actually say, look, my relationship's not
1: working and how do I get help? Now, Kerry, there must be times though where you do have to make judgments. I mean, you're governed by the Crimes Act. That's right. In your course of work, there must be uh, you, you must have instances where you've uncovered criminal behaviour or things going on that you know don't quite fit. Well, we'll what you were initially there for. Well, what we do, and this is how the
2: process works. Uh, that is, if someone rings me and says, "Look, Kerry, I suspect my partner of having an affair, or I'm concerned." <clears throat> We'll arrange an appointment, and at that appoint, it's a one-hour appointment. And at that appointment, we'll ask them to bring e- any evidence that they've currently got about um, the infidelity. And it may be they've kept diary notes, and we encourage people to somewhere keep um, notes of the activity, but obviously in a really safe place. Um, they'll bring um, notes along, uh, or diary entries, or they'll bring. they I'll ask them to. Uh, record any of those times where your partner's been away and it seems unusual, or maybe they're receiving phone calls at night, or maybe texts, or maybe they're going into the bathroom and receiving texts, any suspicious activity, um, I'll ask them to record that. By the time they get to our one-hour appointment, we have a one-hour appointment, and we go through that whole process. At that time, it gives me an opportunity also to meet them um, and it also gives me an opportunity to understand the entire case. At that stage, I'll take the information away. I'll review it again without them being there, obviously, just to uh, get a, a, a you know, a good feel of what's happening, what's been happening. And then I'll contact them again. And from there, um, we'll determine a time to engage the 12 hours worth of surveillance. At that stage, some people may not want to go f- um, through with the uh, inquiry, and that's fine. At least they, they know what we would do under those circumstances, and uh, a number of them will decide, look, we'll go ahead with the 12 hours and we'll engage that. But at the meeting, it gives me... You know, I, You know, I need to ask the tough questions, and that is, has there ever been a trespass order put out on you? Are there any harassment orders out on you? You know, we need to make sure, from my business perspective, that we're dealing with someone who is... Um, Legitimate. Oh, absolutely. Mm. Um, And if they're dealing with a lawyer, uh, over a family issue perhaps, um, then I'll deal straight with the lawyer. So it gives me an opportunity and them an opportunity to know what we can deliver and more importantly, and just as importantly I should say, um, we need to know who we're dealing with.
1: So Kerry, is this when those seven and a half years on the police force, is this when all that training comes into play? I think it's about getting the facts. Mm. And the facts is, is not only about the infidelity
2: itself. And as I said, we're relationship investigators. So it can be um, marriage scams, people that come into this country, internet deception. For example, you've met someone online, and we're getting more people ring us now and saying, I've met Joe Bloggs, for example, online. He's saying that he does this, 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 this and this. I've got some concerns. I'm thinking about coming over to New Zealand to meet him, or her, or whomever it may be. Because, of course, there was that recent case. Eh? In the South Island, that's right. Mm. Um, And as a result of that, they want us to know whether he or she is actually working at a particular place. And there have been occasions where what they've said online is significantly different from what we've uncovered. And, you know, it's about a personal investment in yourself. And I think a client said it most succinctly to me, and he said, Kerry, this money is a personal investment in my future. Now, if you've come all the way from America, for example, to meet someone over here and find that they're not the person that they... Um, spouse to be online then I'd suggest that that $1,500 was well spent just in terms of safety issues as well
1: Effectively that could be quite alarming couldn't
2: it? Well you've got to be careful now because that's what I mean there's some wonderful sites online and there are some fantastic relationships that have been formed as a direct result of meeting someone online however those aren't the people that we deal with the people that we deal with have suspicions about the person online or perhaps the person that they're meeting. And there's some strict criteria about meeting people online. And what I do encourage people to do is that if they are meeting someone online, that they need to be really careful about how they meet them, <coughs> um, where they meet them. Oh, you mean when they, when they hook up That's right, personally. and the information that they're giving. And we literally, we, we just um, make sure that that information that's been given is correct.
1: Now, how many of your clients are Māori?
2: Very few in actual fact, interestingly enough.
1: Um, um, Really, very
2: few at the moment. Um, For whatever reason, I'm not terribly sure. Interestingly enough, um, and I think we spoke about this earlier, I sent out a... I do my own press releases as well, so you know, um, I've written press releases about the connection between lo- loneliness and romance scams, um, workplace infidelity, Valentine's Day, etc. And I sent that out to a number of um, different media. And what became very obvious to me is the only ones that didn't pick it up were actually the Maori media for some reason. I have no idea why that is. Um, but certainly our service is available for everybody, obviously.
1: Now, another part of your business, well, not necessarily part of the business, but another offshoot to it is the impact that infidelity can have on children. Yeah, that's right.
2: What becomes really obvious is... Um, and I think and a number of uh, clients talk about this is that they're not only concerned about their own relationship, obviously, but the way that it may impact on child uh, your child's perception of a relationship. And, you know, I'm not a psychologist, and I don't profess to being one. I'm just really um, um, regurgitating, for want of a better word, um, stories and concerns that our clients have about the impact it have on their children. and And I think that's why we look at, um, you know, making informed. We talk about making an informed decision for you and your family, because for many people, they've been in relationships for quite some time. And they've known for years that their partner's been unfaithful. And instead of focusing perhaps on themselves to make, you know, to move forward and maybe move out of the relationship or stay in it with good counselling, I find that a catalyst for change is often the focus on their own children. So they are very aware that um, seeing their husband or wife. Um, never at home, um, and, and, of course, everything that goes with it, you know, the arguments that go with the questioning, questioning around infidelity, all of those issues must have a impact on children and the way that they perceive relationships. <clears throat> so we hear that quite frequently, and as I said, um, that in itself, that behaviour in itself is often the catalyst for change. You know, both men and women want to make sure their children are in an environment that is conducive to a um, healthy um,
1: family life and healthy relationships. Okay, so let's go through the surveillance. Maybe I've watched too many cop movies. I mean, do you sit in cars and then go bursting out of the car with a with a camera and start, <laughs> and burst into hotel rooms and take photos of uh, little indiscretions? Well, it's really interesting. People think we do
2: that, but we're, um, we're bound by the Private Investigators and Security Guards Act and the Privacy Act. And I think people have that perception because they see all of those movies on t v <laughs> now, apart from the fact that most of those movies are made overseas and their legislation is significantly different to ours, The reality is is that if someone engages our services, we get because we're all creatures of habit, and that's what we work on um, for example, you got up this morning, maybe went to the kitchen, had. Weet-books, which you always have every week, every day, and then you think, you looked at your time, thought, oh, i better go and have a shower, and then you think, oh, i better get dressed. It's quarter to eight, I'd better get to work. You get in the car, you drive exactly the same way, you're parking in exactly the same place, you go next door, you get the paper and take it up to work, and then you make yourself a coffee, and then you look and think, right, I've got to start work. Well, we rely on your pattern of behaviour.
1: God, it's so true. It just made everyone sound really boring.
2: <coughs> we do all do that. We do. You know you know it's, it's and and we rely on that as a private investigator I rely on that and the reason I rely on that is because when that pattern changes and that's often noted by the partner so for example if you've never gone to the gym before if you really um, you're not that good with texting or technology or using the phone but now you go to the gym um, perhaps you start using cologne or you know or, or female perfume um, perhaps if you I start to work late um, turn your phone off at lunch times um, more arguments at home um, you know there's a variety absolute variety of things maybe you start taking cash out at lunch times you never did before um, perhaps you seem far more evasive than you used to be there's a variety of patterns if your, pattern, your original pattern changes then that's what we observe and that's what your partner is observing so Um, And that sort of information comes to us. So we would know, for example, that you go to work at 9 o'clock in the morning and, you know, you have a lunch break but you never go out at lunchtime. Your partner may know that pattern. Well, once I know that pattern and my team know that pattern, then if that pattern changes, like lunchtimes you're now seeing someone or, or perhaps you're looking a lot smarter than you used to or perhaps you're texting, all of those sort of things, that's the sort of information that we need. So, yep we do go out in vehicles, we do observe people's movements, Um, we cannot take photographs, registered private investigators, interestingly enough, can't take photographs unless they are, um, it's for identity purposes only and that proceeding is going to court so they're quite specific about what you can and can't do Um, the the reality is, is that my team, including myself, we're all ex police officers, and that should we need to, we can give affidavits, and um, and those can be um, produced in court if if that requirement is needed. M- more likely than not, though, uh, we give the information over, and it's just confirming what the client knows.
1: You said you're all ex police officers. Mm. Does that make it easier?
2: Well, I think it sets a standard. Uh, I think the reality is, is that. We we're all ex police officers. Um, as a result of that, we know what to look for in terms of um, facts. We're not influenced by yeah anything but a fact, and um, and we can all put together an affidavit, obviously. And we know what the level of proof is require is required for various things. So just make, yeah, I mean it's it's very easy working with um, ex police. We've all got the same sta- standards.
1: So you know when you meet back with the client, mm-hmm. I mean,
2: do you just read
1: through everything?
2: No, we'll, well, it's an opportunity for them to really just offload, um, in some cases, 5, 10, 15 years' worth of concerns. But what I look for is I start to pick out the pattern, and I can see or hear clearly you know, why they, their suspicions have come about. And, um, and as a result of that, I can start to, in my mind, um, I'm starting to record, with well, that's you know that that piece of the puzzle fits with that piece of the puzzle that piece of the puzzle fits with that piece of the puzzle and um and what I'm looking at is i'm looking at an opportune time to engage surveillance so that it will be cost effective and that it will um result in um, you know in clear facts for the for the client
1: right so you don't necessarily you know, do the 12-hour surveillance and then do another 12 hours no. and then another 12 hours?
2: Uh, uh, it just depends, really. Um, you do a one-hour um, meeting, and that's paid for separately. That's usually about $130, and that's paid for separately. From there, people might go away and they'll think about it for a period of time. If they decide after that, look, we're going to engage the 12 hours, in that 12 hours, the reason that I need to know the facts at the meeting is so that I can... Um, focus on the best and most opportune time to see that person perhaps meet another. Once I, you know, it might be every Thursday night, he, he said he's going out with the boys, but in actual fact, he's not. So it might be the Thursday evening. So we can split that 12 hours into three, four hour lots if we need to, or, or one straight 12 hour, or one six hour. It just depends. You know, we can go out on a Friday night, and he's meant to be with the boys, but in actual fact, he's out at, at, at a restaurant. Gosh, and that it would sounds be like enough. It could
1: be quite boring. Sitting in cars, watching people. Yeah,
2: I, um, you know, I guess that's just a portion of it. Really, um, it is about finding the facts. Sometimes, you know, it it it's, it can be time consuming, mm. but you know, you've got to remember that the client's been in this relationship and concerned for years, and if we can get results within that twelve hour period, and um, or that it might be for example, they're flying down to Wellington and they're having a conference, and so you've got. Two days, excuse me, two days to find the facts. And um, so it can be a bit of a, you know, there can be quite a bit of pressure on to get those results pretty quickly. So does that
1: mean, Kerry, you've got clientele that aren't necessarily Wellington-based? Oh,
2: we, we, uh, our clientele is from throughout New Zealand, and we travel over. We've just come back from overseas just prior to Christmas. Um, So it's not only in New Zealand, it's, you know, it's um, overseas as well. But we have... Peak times, so for example, um, leading up to Valentine's Day, Valentine's Day, Christmas, leading up to Christmas, because people have concerns if someone's being unfaithful. They at Christmas time creates a real dilemma. So does Valentine's Day, where they think, "I've got to be with my partner, but I'd really rather be with this other person." So you can see some real behaviour changes through that period, and of course the sevens here in Wellington, are big time for us, because people fly. The sevens? People fly in from all over the world and throughout New Zealand, and so they often fly in without their partners. And so we're pretty busy during the sevens. So we go from sort of pre-Christmas, Christmas, Christmas, um, -Christmas, post-Christmas, Valentine's, uh, sorry, the sevens, then into Valentine's Day. So those three months are pretty. Busy. So
1: the sevens may not necessarily necessarily just be random hookups. They can be planned. Oh, absolutely. Meeting absolutely. a long term third party. Mm. Who knew that about the sevens? <laughs> so,
2: so they talk about yeah, I mean, well, you know, there's thousands and thousands of people that come to the sevens. Mm. Um, So, you know, that's a pretty busy time for us. So effectively what I'm trying to do with Rokey's investigations is just to, you know, I'm really keen and interested in informing people about what they can do in situations of infidelity. You know, I'm writing a book at the moment and um, we want to get some educational um, information out there about infidelity and how it can impact on families. Um, I write my own press releases and and have been really fortunate... um, for, you know, the Herald and various other organ papers to pick it up, the DOM and staff.co, and, um, and I've got um, appearing regularly on the Good Morning Show, and it's all about let's talk about those issues surrounding infidelity. You know, there's some really interesting issues around infidelity, as you said, the impact it has on children's perceptions of relationships, um, um, you know, you know, Using, utilizing the services of your family lawyers who know what to do because a lot of people are in that process of feeling fear obviously now their partner's left or is contemplating leaving and what did they do? They're looking after the kids. Um, so those sort of things, um, you know, information to different cultures, the Asian community and also the Indian community, uh, we're getting more people from both of those communities um, requiring our services. Um, you know how you get information. People don't realise that. You know, f- for example, um, the bank account. Uh, sorry, or the phone bill. If your partner, if, if if the bank account, for example, is under one name, it's very difficult for the other person to get information in relation to it, even though they think that they've been putting money into it for ever. Uh, phone bills are another classic example of that. Um, if your partner, if you both purchased a phone, um, but it's actually in your partner's name and you're not one of the authorities on the account, can't get any information. So let's inform people about what they can and can't do. Uh, let's talk about infidelity. But it applies to the bank accounts as well, though. Eh? Yeah, it does. It does. Mm. Um, and, you know, I, I'm really keen for men to have a voice as well and talk about the issues around infidelity and how it's impacted on them and, um, you know, conditions of a relationship. That's what I have noticed over seven and a half years is that Uh, when people get into a relationship they never set conditions so uh, what do you mean well they never set a condition which means you know have you ever ever spoken to your partner about flirting or going online or talking to people in dating sites is that okay Um, people never set conditions to relationships and so when that When a condition in their mind's been breached, i.e., flirting, for example, well, the other part, their partner can't um, relate to that because they've always flirted, probably, in many occasions, they've met that person by flirting. So, or for example, if your partner's been unfaithful, um, but you met him that way, you met him, uh, he was current, for example, and it can be women as well, by the way, but you've met your partner um, and they were in a relationship when you met them and now you're questioning why they're being unfaithful in your relationship. And when, uh, when a discussion has been had and the and both partners are being uh, truthful, found that in actual fact your partner's been unfaithful on every partner. So we never talk about the conditions of a relationship, what's okay. And when we feel that it's been breached, the other one's just not aware of that condition. So I've, I find that pretty fascinating.
1: Nobody talks about conditions of
2: a relationship when are in the
1: honeymoon period.
2: That's <laughs> right. I absolutely agree with you. They don't. But what becomes very obvious over these seven years mm. is that, you know, I constantly have clients that say, well, um, going online and chatting on an online site with single women, um, you know, he thinks that's okay. But in actual fact, is it? So... It's so all those questions around um, relationships, setting conditions, what's appropriate, what's not, and really understanding your partner. And I fully agree with you. I think um, people omit to talk about those th- sort of things because yes, they're in the honeymoon period, and then they've got children, and then, and so they don't talk about them. But of course, when there's been a transgression, they say, "Well, you know, that was never appropriate." But the partner sometimes appears absolutely
1: surprised by it. So you know when you see clientele here, are they you must see a lot of tears or are they past the tears stage? You know, I think um,
2: any relationship when a relationship breaks up, um, it can be quite a sad experience and you know, we can all appreciate that. And sometimes I'm the only person that they've been honest to. Because they don't want to tell their children or they feel embarrassed. Um, And as I said, it's not only women that use their service, it's men as well. So they feel highly embarrassed. Um, And what we're saying is that at least if you have knowledge, you're informed and you can
1: make a better decision. Nazika tika hununu Kiri Pihima, talking about her private investigation business, Rockier's Investigations. And in a longer version of that all Kiri talks about the impact infidelity
0: has upon children and what she refers to as the conditions of a relationship.
1: Go to our website, radionz.co.nz forward slash after this broadcast, and it's all there.
3: Go listening to Radio National. National.
0: It's New Zealand Music Month and Carl Goldsmith of the Māori Broadcasting Funding Agency Te Māngai Pāho
1: outlines what that means for his organisation. Which is where Māori singer-songwriters can go to for funding when they want to make an album.
7: I'm Carl Goldsmith i Māori mō Te Māngai Pāho. I've been employed by Te Māngai Pāho for... Um, about nine years, uh, involved in radio programs, uh, music, uh, CD productions, and uh, basically looking after the funding for our iwi radio stations. We have a network of 21 iwi radio stations, uh, 20 in the North Island, and one down south being Ngai Thank
0: Kia ora, Carl. And in particular, I wanted to focus on New Zealand Music Month. I mean, we've got artists like... Um, not necessarily in Te reo Māori, which is the main focus of Te Mangai Pāho, but we've got artists like Smash Proof Lady, Six, Sixnesia Mystic. How does a Māori artist um, get their CD out there and what, what, what do they have to do? What does te, how does Te Mangai Pāho service those people that want to get their music out there?
7: Mm. Um, te Mangai Pāho has uh, an annual funding, one annual funding round per year um, to service uh, artists that are out in the industry um, this year, we've actually this month we've just released our RFP for music proposals that uh, closes on Friday or Monday, the 18th of May.
0: And the RFP means request for proposal.
7: Oh, proposal, right? Yep. So artists or production houses can apply to Tamonga Power through this uh, RFP process uh, for funding to fund albums or compilations. The albums. Um, each album is, uh, we've put a value of $50,000 for 10 tracks. Uh, the content, we've now got a funding, what we call a funding triangle, where we've, we're seeking uh, a variation slightly to what we've done in the past. In the past, we've asked for uh, all proposals and CDs to be uh, consist of 95% uh, te Reo Māori. Now we've opened the doors to uh, more bilingual content where we can uh, add English uh, lyrics into your work.
0: So somebody has written, say for example, 10 songs, um, 50-50 in English in reo. Is that reo. Cap- is that okay with the criteria? Yes. Yeah, yeah. and then they yeah. can go for that 50,000 grant.
7: Yes, and then there's, there's the criteria that sits around that as well. You no, know, that that um, that would help stack it up. But inside of that that triangle, there's there's three three uh, levels. There's a, a up to thirty percent content of Māori, a thirty to seventy percent content, and then seventy plus. So seventy plus is obviously for uh, fluent, uh, fluent fluent speakers of yeah fluent speakers. Um, the next level down, thirty to seventy, is second language learners, and then there's up to thirty percent which. Is for receptive audiences, so we've catered for a wider market. we in the past with the doors being pretty closed for artists who maybe are not quite meet, meeting the mark in terms of tutorial content of 95%. So we've opened that up now. So there's a lot of artists out there that are, are not quite up to 95%, but um, yeah, let's hope they come through. We've certainly circulated through our networks the the RFP as well as putting it on our website. So we'll just have to wait and see what comes up on the eighteenth
0: of May. Hey Carl, what's your um on things like YouTube, Bebo, Facebook? Do you support those um, mechanisms or technology in getting Māori music out there?
7: Oh definitely. Yeah. You know, in terms of our <clears throat> digital environment, that's why we've upgraded all our network and now these stations are moving into Facebook and Bebo Twitter. and Twitter things. You know, and, and it's our youth that's where they're going. We've got to chase the youth in a way. Yep. Where are they going? So that's where we are. You know, mobile phones, if we can get our music, our language on these um, other forms of media streams, all the better. You know, our, our mission here is to get our language and our content out as far and as wide as we can. And um, these are just other avenues that we do it.
0: And finally, Carl, what are your thoughts on New Zealand Music Month?
7: Oh, totally supportive. Um Actually, this weekend we've got the New Zealand Radio Awards. Uh, it's happening up in Auckland. Uh, later in the month there's the Pacific um, Music Awards. Uh, and this New Zealand Music Month's been going on for some time now. We want to sort of not only make it a month, we want to make it the whole year. <laughs> yeah. You know, 365 days of the year, if we could, if we could do it. Um, Yeah, so we're totally supportive of um, anything to do with music, especially Māori music too.
1: And tune in for the month of Haratua. May will be profiling Māori musicians, starting with Smash Proof. Who kicked a 23-year-old record to the ground when they booted off
0: Sailing Away by All of Us. One of the most amazing things about our job as we travel the length and breadth of the Mutsu is seeing Māori in all
1: our diversity. And believe me, you meet some real characters. Last year, I spent a hard case afternoon in the lounge of Naitahu Kuia, Lexi Starkey, who sadly passed away a few weeks ago. We broadcasted that interview last year, but here's a reminder
0: of that lovely Kuia.
3: Lexi Starkey's my name, and my my parents were. My father was a Pakeha, James King, and my mother was Maori. She was uh, Francis Poharama from Kaikoura. I was really born in Christchurch, but um is our hometown. Just a. Um,
1: you were one of ten children.
3: Yes, uh, six. There were six girls and four brothers in our family.
1: In your early life, Lexi, whereabouts?
3: Early life, we lived with our grandparents in Mangamanu. Um, It was lovely there. No matter where we went, whichever home we went into, we were always welcome. There was always, you know. Yeah, we were like one big family, didn't matter. We were one big family, all the ones in the par. A fair bit of our time was spent going bird nesting. In those days, they paid us for the uh, bird's eggs because there were so many birds. And I think the birds, you know, when the farmers and that grew their seeds, that's how they used to get rid of them. For all the eggs that we could get, we got paid for them. You'd climb a tree and put them in your mouth and then climb down (laughs) And then we would, you know, cornany berries would be getting ripe. So away we'd go with a little billy thing and climb the cornany trees and be covered with cornanys all around our faces. Of round of eating, they were lovely. <laughs> they were really lovely. Um, crackerberries. We used to have those. An uncle of ours used to. Um, he used to get a lot, cook them in a big copper. And us kids would go up there and we'd, we'd just help ourselves too. You ate the kernel inside. Have you ever had, seen them, crackerberries? The fruit on the outside, they're just like a date. So we used to eat the orange part on the outside, although oh, they were lovely, and then but the, cook the kernel inside when you. I used to cook them for about uh, three days just to take the poison out. But if I collect them now, I only cook them for so many hours. It's the inside that's poison. But when they're cooked, they're like nuts, you know. Yeah. Um, so, But I don't cook them for three days. I cook them for so many hours and that. And I think, oh, well, they're cooked. That's enough. It's just to make sure that they're cooked. But I suppose... Our, our, our people in those days were making sure. So they'd boil them up in a big copper for about three days to make sure they got all the poison out of them. The um, kawakawa berries, you know. The kawakawa berries? Yeah, they're nice. I love them. Yeah. How do you prepare and... Just eat them. On the- <laughs> when, when they're a nice orange colour, and then, yeah, and they have a kind of a cinnamon-y sort of flavour.
1: Yes. So was that like your main food source when you were growing up, everything around you? Everything around us, yes. And did it did it just happen by osmosis that you learned about, you know, what thing wasn't right, what would make you sick, what was poison? Or can you remember the old people telling you things like that? Do you know how when you're a kid and you just yeah. know? It's like, oh, don't eat that. That'll make you sick. <laughs> yeah, and uh,
3: I can't remember them t- ever telling us or not because I I just know that we used to just. Yeah, I suppose that they must have warned us, eh? They must have, I suppose. We just knew not to. Well,
1: sometimes it's because there's loads and loads of kids of different ages together mm. and you just hear it from your older cousin or your brother or, you know, and it just filters we down. We just grew
3: it. up together knowing that somehow. Bulla bullas What are bulla bullas pula We call them bulla bullas What does the Pakehs call them? Deadly nightshades. But the right name is Pula-pula, is it? Some name that starts with P, pula Yeah, that's the right name. And, and they grow in the paddock, you know. The, the, the Pakehwala farms used to have uh, this big paddock there with Swedes all growing in it. And uh, the weeds, the dead, you know, shade, we call them bulla you'd find us Maori kids sitting in the middle of them. <laughs> I, they used to say, Oh, that poison, that poison. Well, by Jove, we must have cast iron stomachs because <laughs> we grew, grew up with, you know. Yes. I remember my daughter, Moana. they they had a session at Omaka Marae of all the different. Dialects, you know, of our people, and Moana says she says all oh, the Noongar people got B in their language, you know. For B. and um, she come home, she said, Mum, they wouldn't believe me, and I said, Why? She said, I told them we had Noongar people that had B in their their uh, language, you know, and um, I said. Where did you get that from, one
0: Mum, of course, she said we used to have bulla bullas. <laughs> so Mariah, when you talked to this queer, you had
1: some pretty, you know, memorable times. I did. She was such a sweetie. She was tiny and uh she had anticipated my visit and made us these she'd experimented with this uh, recipe that she got from a magazine that had feta, and p- they were like feta and pumpkin rolls, um, but I think she got one of the ingredients mixed up because they they were really, really sweet. Really, really sweet. But they were just delicious, and she had put so much love and aroha into it, and so as a koha, I gave her um, one of our beanies, and we have a photo of her, wearing one of the Radio New Zealand beanies. It's really sweet.
0: Oh, ka pai. And after this broadcast, you'll be able to download the
1: complete interview with Lexi Starkey. Moimai Mai e kui. Ko marae a rakuraku tōku ingoa ke te whakarongo maikoutou ki te ahikā irunga runga a te reo irirangi o Aotearoa. A neira a marae Timu Timu no Ngai
0: Te rangi, with this week's fakatoki.
1: Manaki whenua, manaki tangata, haere whakamua. Care for the land, care for the people, go forward. My interpretation of this uh, kōrero is that essentially by caring for the land, we are in turn caring for our own people, and so there's always going to be a continuum for the next generations to come. For the past week in Geneva, Switzerland, there's been the United Nations Human Rights Council Universal Periodic Review of New Zealand on Human Rights.
0: Lawyer Claire Charters has been there lobbying on behalf of Māori in relation to compliance with the Treaty of Waitangi and Human Rights.
1: We have an interview with her next week. Hoki mai noa tēra wiki e katoa.